Listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Brick Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Toshihiko Nakata discussing energy resources in Japan. Also, we'll find out how the Fibonacci numbers are created. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world famous question of the week. Coming right up here on Berkeley Grox. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Very good, very good. All right. I, I love Berkeley Crocs. If I weren't doing the show right now, I would actually be listening to the show as much as I could be. Wow, what yeah. a concept. It's amazing, yeah. I live and breathe this show for our loyal listeners out there who rely on us for, I guess, all their science news. Some of their science and news. Right? Some of their, well, that's a good thing. <laughs> Frankly, we, we don't want to be biased. Yes, if you're relying on us for science news, uh, well, <laughs> I won't make any comments. Hmm. We, we do have a governor who's an actor, so that's true. <laughs> so I guess uh, what what you're saying is that uh, you don't really need to be qualified to do a job. Probably not. Just have to be popular, which we aren't either. So, <laughs> all right. So what do we have going on in science for all the uh, fine people out there who want to know about for science? fine people? Yes, a couple of interesting stories. Uh, actually, one good story, and one not so good story for the environment. Uh, the first one's concerning salmon and PCBs. Salmon and PCBs. So, so. PCBs are polychlorinated biphenyls, which are uh, a leading cause of uh, pollution and you know uh, contaminants, which cause cancer. Right. So it turns out that sockeye salmon, uh, you know, in their end of life, they would migrate from the ocean water to their fresh water to spawn, right? And in that process, they seem to carry a significant amount of PCBs with them back to their freshwater uh, uh, locations. And so does this then affect, I guess, the local flora and fauna around there? Right. So uh, some scientists are worried that... Uh, the amount of PCB they're bringing in is way too much. Uh, in fact, uh, up to about 10 times what's would normally be carried throughout the air is being carried through these uh, fishes. And once they die after spawning, the PCB remains in the fresh water. Oh, okay. So, and then other fishes can come by and eat it, and you get a buildup of PCBs. Right. So even though they're already near the top of the food chain, mm-hmm. after they die, they're, uh, the PCBs can go back into the fresh water uh. and then, in turn, infect uh, other freshwater fishes living there. Work done by uh, Jules Blaze, biology professor at the University of Ottawa, suggests that with with this bill of PCBs, you could get, uh, you know, reproductive deformations with these other species, which could ultimately destroy the ecology. True. And give us three-headed fish, <laughs> which which could be good if you like fish stew, mm. fish head stew. Oh, well. So what, what are they recommending then, uh, other than, of course standard reduction of PCB emissions by us humans? This is a very difficult problem because the PCBs these fishes are getting are from the ocean and ah. 
So they're, uh, they're naturally occurring PCBs? Or no, because the, the ocean also has some, but because the fish is fatty, so it can accumulate the PCBs in the ocean, mm. and then when it dies in the fresh water, I see. it just gets accumulated there. Well, so do they have any recommendations then to stop it? Not right now. I mean, uh, I'm not sure how you could uh, clean out the ocean at this time, but... I think detergent will... Just wash it up, right? Yeah. But it's just a warning that they should be worried about the accumulation of uh, contaminants from the ocean into fresh water. Well, if there's anything we need, it's more warnings. <laughs> and if anyone wants to read more, they can go to a recent issue of Nature, Volume 425. Okay, well, uh, we, if we ever get to the moon, uh, PCBs may not be a problem for... No, it's pretty clean up there, right? I, I guess so, and uh, not a lot of fish is... Uh, at least migrating from the moon to fresh water. No. And part of the problem is, it turns out, is that the moon does not hold as much water as we thought to begin with. Oh, darn. Yeah. We have flying fishes already, right? So we don't... <laughs> uh, I think you need rocket-powered fishes to oh, get there. Oh, rocket-powered fishes. <laughs> yeah, it turns out it's quite of an interesting thing because uh, if we ever want to colonize the moon, one of the big issues is going to be, well, where do we get our water? And for a while, uh, researchers have thought that, in fact, the moon harvested some amount of water underneath its uh, surface just from comets that carried water hitting it. It could be deposited. Something like ice deposits. Right, ice deposits over time. But recent studies have now shown that, in fact, there isn't as much water as we first thought. Yeah, I guess we got to bring a lot of moisturizer if we're going to live on the moon, huh? There's something like that. Uh, <laughs> carry out some avion up there. <laughs> Uh, but it's interesting because uh, a group of researchers led by Bruce Campbell of the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., and his colleagues used the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico mm -hmm. to bounce some radar signals off the moon's poles to actually look for water in the uh, in the soil there. Right. And what you can tell is that if there's some reflectance change, mm -hmm. that in fact... Some absorption. Yeah, you'll find some water. Right. But what they saw was, in fact, that they didn't find any uh, real substantial amounts of water, and the stuff that is there just kind of spread out and dispersed. So it's kind of interesting, and uh, it kind of contradicts findings from a previous survey, which was uh, done by a, a, a spacecraft, Clementine, mm -hmm. and that one actually showed what looked like ice packets, but it looks like now that that might just have been crater walls reflecting in some weird way. Okay. So it's kind of interesting. It just says that if we ever go to the moon, that uh, we need to bring our own water. And if anyone's interested in this, they can go to the recent edition of Nature. So, Charles, do you know how many people in the U.S. lived in areas that were considered having unhealthy air last year? Well, I don't know. Two? You're close. 146 million. Ah, uh, just a couple orders of magnitude off. Yeah. So this is actually good news here. I mean, not this part, but <laughs> some recent studies suggest that the, uh, the air quality in the U.S. has been getting better since the year 2000 and significantly since uh, 1970. Oh, okay. So, in fact, this 146 million is better than it was uh, several years ago? Probably was up to like 200 million several years ago. Oh, but, wow. But, so for example, they, they measured six different air pollutants, and they found that all of them decreased uh, on average 48% since 1970. Oh, okay. That's good. The most significant is uh, sulfur dioxide. That's one of the main components in acid rain. It's 9% lower than it was in 2000 and actually 40% lower than it was in 1980. So you can see there is a significant reduction. Administrators in the government are, you know, pointing out that all this work in uh, reducing emissions from, you know, power plants and cars is actually working and that we are seeing uh, improvement in our air quality. Well, that's good. Yeah, because that was the, the big thing in the 70s and 80s was reducing all these uh, uh, gases that were causing acid rain and, right. and everything. Right. Cool. So, so does that mean that uh, we're out of the, uh, or we're starting to get out of the 
bad uh, pollutant atmospheres? Or we well, we still have a ways to go. I mean, uh, we still have the 146 million who uh, <laughs> were affected in some form last year. So I see. But but overall, I guess they're quite overall it is uh, going down. So okay. we have reason to be optimistic. All right, we'll tell that to the people in L.A. <laughs> <because> <laughs> that is a constant smog fest. Right. So if anyone wants to know more, uh, just go to the website of the Environmental Protection Agency. All right, well, uh, I guess not good news for those 146 million that are uh, suffering from... Uh, Some sort of bad smog. <laughs> yes, indeed. But if, in fact, they do enjoy fine sushi, then uh, they may be interested in to know that the large red sea urchin can live up to 200 years. Live 200 years and accumulate a lot of PCBs, right? <laughs> that is, well, hmm, that, that could be part of the issue. Hmm. Uh, but this is, in fact, quite interesting because uh, for quite some time, it has been thought that these large red sea urchins live just a mere 15 years or so. Mm -hmm. But recent research is showing that, in fact, these uh, sea urchins grow quite slowly after the first few years of growth, so that when they do see these large sea urchins, they don't just represent a few years' worth of growth. They may, in fact, represent up to 200 years. So they're like turtles of the sea, huh? In in some ways. They're they're like chicken of the sea. <laughs> or is that tuna? <laughs> um, or is it Mozart? I'm not really sure. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. So this is an interesting study that was carried out by zoologist Thomas Ebert of the uh, Oregon State University in Hey, Cornwall. I give a thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> and Siskel does too. Uh, but Ebert's group apparently monitored uh, growth of a number of urchins, and what they did was they actually showed that these sea urchins grow first very rapidly during the first couple years of life, mm -hmm. but then uh, it takes several more years, uh, basically they have an exponential slowdown in their growth. If only we could do that. <laughs> in a way, we do. I, I feel like I'm not maturing much. Not Anymore. <laughs> Me neither. I or think at I, all. I, I think I'm regressing, actually. <laughs> I'm almost at the fetal stage. Could be a good thing in certain levels. <laughs> Start over, man. Yeah. Anyway, this is interesting work. It was carried out in the October issue of the U.S. Fisheries Bulletin, and it has implications because they're saying if you're going to actually go out and fish these sea urchins, mm -hmm. uh, if, you're, if you're fishing out these big uh, sea urchins, you're actually fishing hundreds of years' worth of growth. So they're saying, well, perhaps we need to put an upper limit on the size of these sea urchins that you can actually fish out. Okay. Otherwise, you're depleting uh, the ocean of a natural resource. So they must be reproduced pretty slowly as well, huh? Well, it's interesting because that's part of the issue is that the bigger sea urchins actually reproduce a lot more. Oh. So they'd, you'd want to actually leave the bigger sea urchins so you can have more sea urchins around. I see and fish those out. But so this is an interesting uh, problem, and uh, you can find out more about this if you check out the U.S. Fishery Bulletin. I read that all the time. It's fishy. Well, it looks like that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. This is Berkeley Gross you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Professor Toshiko Nakata will join us to tell us about Japan's energy policy. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Perfect Rocks. We'll continue our discussions on the energy and environment today. Uh, joining us is Professor Toshihiko Nakata from Tohoku University in Sendai, Japan. Professor Nakata, thanks for joining us on Perfect Rocks today. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here with Frank. First of all, could you tell us a little bit about your department here at the university? Okay, I belong to uh, the management of science and technology department in the engineering school. So, which means so management means how to manage the environmental and energy and technology policy in Japan. As you know, Japan has a heavy technology like automobile manufacturing and computer manufacturing. However, the management of technology is not well done here in this country. So that's why this University of Tohoku uh, decided to have a new department. Could you give us an example of, of a country that has good management of technology? Uh, always we are interested in this kind of management school in the United States because uh, management of technology is called MOT school mm -hmm. in English and I think the U.S. has more than 100 MOT schools all over the nation. However, Japan doesn't have. And uh, could you tell us a little bit more about your research? I'm interested in energy policy in this country because I was in mechanical engineering and when I did a lot of design for uh, power stations like uh, combined gas turbine stations, mm -hmm. at that time I was always interested in how to make use of my good technology in the real world. And even when I developed a highway technology, it didn't come to the market because of high cost or something constrained in the market. So that's why I realized that we need to understand how the market is working in the real life. So that's the way how to make use of my technology into the world. Excellent. Could you tell us a little bit more about Japanese energy policy and perhaps compare it to, uh, say, the U.S. or Europe? Well, that's a good question because Japanese energy policy was always following the U.S. style <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. during 50 years less. That means um, Japan aimed to establish a big industry, like a big electricity industry, right. big manufacturing business, and big oil companies. However, Japan has a very uh, different culture in the nation, and this area is not much wide, so which means Japan requires a more uh, variety of energy choices based on the culture or based on the condition or how much population, how, how about uh, lifestyles in each cities. Mm -hmm. In that sense, U.S. is not good, not always good to follow. <laughs> Right. right. On the contrast, uh, European has a more variety of choices, like North Europe countries. Northern has, Europe. Yeah, Northern Europe has more biomass-oriented uh, energy supply styles, mm -hmm. like uh, biomass wood is a main industry and right. main energy resources. And French has a very nuclear-oriented one. And right. Italy has a similar situation like Japan. However, Italy has a kind of a good management, except blackout currently. Oh. <laughs> but they mostly imp has uh, imported electricity and imported gas and imported oil. However, they are good at managing the imported variety of choices. So that's a big difference. Um, so does that make sense? There's definitely a growing need for more energy in the future. What do you think are the best policies to uh, meet these needs? Well, uh, I like a neutral policy among uh, nuclear people and renewable people. <laughs> so a combination? Yeah, a combination. Even in this country or even in my university, some of the students have a very strong uh, positive opinion 
live in the rural areas. Like now here in Sendai, you can see a lot of greens and mountains. And right. also wild bear is coming to the campus sometimes. Uh-huh. <laughs> so in this area, we have a lot of choices, like PVs on the residential use, and sometimes wind. I see. And there are a lot of biomasses. So in the traditional way, uh, Japan's energy policy was mainly designed by people in Tokyo, <laughs> right? Right. And also, the pop- number of population is always inc- increasing. So government target is how to get a huge amount of energy to you know, make people alive in Japan, right? However, now, fortunately, I can say the number of population is decreasing in the first time of Japan's history. Mm-hmm. In that sense, rather than having interest on the mass of population, we can think about the variety of choices under the same amount of maximum population or maximum energy supply. That's why we just began this kind of uh, energy policy simulation study in this university. I, I presume these studies are more economically based rather than technically based, is that correct? We're both based. Oh, both. Uh, I'm traditionally an en- engineering person, so right. I have, I can say, enough background of like a power station technology, gases, any kind of. However, economics, parameters, are very important from now. Uh-huh. So that's why you have to make it make it together into a kind of a computer programming right. and get a reasonable result. For the economic factors, I presume you're using some sort of incentives so that people can adopt new technologies or change their habits. What kind of incentives do you recommend? Well, the easiest one is a tax, like environmental tax or uh-huh. energy tax is easy to install in the government or subsidy. Subsidy. Subsidy, right. And most difficult one in the model is uh, people's preferences. A good example is an automobile company. They produce uh, hybrid cars called Prius, but also they produce a lot of um, high emissions vehicles, <laughs> like sports vehicles. Oh, like SUVs. Right. So we have to decide it which is good for the people, because automobile offers a variety of uh, cultures not only for transportation purposes, but also for the fun or hobbies for the people. So people's preference is a last target, what we have to think about in the model. So along with these, um, the issues involved with energy is uh, environmental factors, for example, uh, CO2 emission. Could you tell us why it's important to consider these issues? Okay, um, that's the third parameter of which I have to think about in the model. First one is energy conversion technologies, and second one is economic parameters. Third one is carbon constraint. Well, everybody knows the Kyoto Protocol. So when we think of technologies, we also calculate the total emission of carbon. And in the model, it's relatively easy to set a constraint of maximum emission of carbon. So within that maximum constraint, we can get kind of uh, optimized solution, how much this fuel must be consumed or how much this technology will be introduced in the model. So carbon is now always important when we think about which technology is important in this purpose for example. Yeah, also I can mention that carbon emission has a lot of uncertainties. Like we don't understand how much absorption from forestry, like a biomass absorption. So still not very well understood. Right. So anyway, it's relatively easy to calculate the emissions from fossil fuels conversions. One last question is, and I'm taking a test case of, of China here, they definitely have a growing need for energy, and a lot of the technology is still uh, not as modern as other nations. Mm-hmm. What recommendations do you have for such a big country like them? I presume they would have a pretty big impact on the world's demand for energy. My comment is, 
China has a lot of choices based on the different regions. So China isn't a uniform country, you know. So populated countries like Beijing and Shanghai requires uh, mass production, like uh, nuclear power, electricity, or fossil fuel combustion systems. However, in rural areas, they can install a renewable-based, a biomass-based society. And also, China has kind of has a strong government policy. So, for example, in Beijing, in the downtown, government prohibit to consume coal anymore. So, what happens there is people switched it just within one year, I guess, from coal to gas. It's amazing in my sense. So when government has a good decision making, I think China's future is not much dark. Pretty bright. <laughs> yeah, pretty bright. And also, they can switch or they can fly to future-based energy society, right? They are, 10 years ago, they are using bicycles. But 10 years later, they are using electric vehicles or fuel cell vehicles. Uh-huh. That's when they decide to do that. <laughs> However, in Japan, Japan has a very sad history for polluted smokes or polluted atmospheric mm-hmm. uh, dust in downtown. So a lot of people suffered from a kind of uh, asthma or some lung diseases. So in that case, China can skip it to more future-oriented style. Okay, I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Um, are, are there any last words you'd like to add? Yeah, I'd be happy to see a lot of visitors in the future. Thanks a lot for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. You are welcome. And we were just talking to Professor Toshihiko Nakara from Tohoku University in Japan. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, we'll find out how the Fibonacci numbers are created, so stay tuned. Here's the Frenchman with the answer to last week's question of the week. Oh, oh, oh and now it is Mr. Frenchy with the answer to last week's question of the week. Oh, oh, oh. Well, how do you generate the Fibonacci numbers? Well, you take the number one and the number one and you add them together. You get the number two. And you take two and add it to the first number one. You get three. Two plus three is five. Five plus three is eight. And so on. Most interesting, my young Padawan. And now here's Yoda with this week's question of the week. Strong the force it is, mm, but it is a tiny dot. The decimal point it is. Mm, 
Can you tell me who made it and why is it so popular? If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you'll get the point. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Franklin. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and have a very Merry Christmas. And stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to strawberry fields. Nothing is real. Thing is real.